Greetings and welcome back to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayersdale. This week, we welcome Allison Arieff. Allison is the editorial director of print for the MIT Technology Review, as well as a former opinion columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of the award-winning magazine Dwell. And I know you're thinking, maybe, might be thinking, I don't want to assume anything, but, you know, Stu, hey, you said just now the MIT Technology Review, like the MIT, that's not California, is it? You would be right. Uh, I'm not referring to the Modesto Institute of Technology, which I don't actually think is a thing, or the Mendocino Institute of Technology, where I would absolutely uh, go for a PhD if I could. I'm talking about the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, and Allison is the editorial director of print there. You might also say, Stu, New York Times, that is not California. And again, you would be right. Uh, she is one of our country's foremost thinkers about urban design and architecture, and she is based right here in California. She's very much a Californian uh, since she was a kid. And today she and her own family call the Bay Area home, specifically San Francisco. I spoke to Allison a few years back in a Q&A for Sacktown Magazine here in Sacramento, where I'm based. And we talked all about her work as a design critic. At the time, she was the editorial director for SPUR, which is the San Francisco Bay Area Planning and Urban Research Association. She was also writing a regular design-oriented column for the New York Times. Allison's current role with MIT Technology Review has her looking and working beyond urban design, but I wanted to invite her to the podcast uh, this week to talk about some of the opportunities, the challenges, the frustrations, and some of her favorite things that she's seeing in California's cities and suburbs. In addition to Allison's editorial work, she is an amazing and enlightening and witty follow on Twitter. I highly recommend checking her out there at A Arif. I'll go ahead and put a link in the show notes. You don't have to remember that right now. But um, yeah, that was another big reason I was compelled to ask Allison to join me on What is California? Just to kind of talk about the ideas and the spirit that she brings to her commentary online. This was just a great chat. It's just really fun to talk to Allison. You can check out the show notes for links to her articles and other references from this conversation. I always really enjoy talking with her and I, I hope you enjoy hearing from her. Let me know because I'd love to hear from you too. You can email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com or hit me up on Twitter at whatcalifornia. Don't be a stranger. Until then, let's get to it. Here is me with Allison Arieff on What is California? Enjoy. Allison Arieff, welcome to What is California? I'm so glad to have you here. I can't wait to talk about your work and uh, your experience with California. But first, let's start with your background, your California story. Are you from here originally? And if not, how and when did you get here? Hi, I'm glad to be here. Fun fact about me that most people don't know, I was born in Fort Hood, Texas, the largest army base in the United States. So technically, I'm not a Californian, but my family uh, moved to Los Angeles when I was about five, and my sister was born there. So I count myself as a Californian. I think that's close enough. That's fine. <laughs> I think so, too. So I have grown up in the Bay Area. And I have certainly 
popped out of the state to live in other places along the way, but I always come back. So I live in San Francisco and have been in San Francisco for a good long time now. Why, why did you choose San Francisco and how did you choose it? When my family moved to the Bay Area, uh, we moved to Marin County, which is just over the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, that's where I grew up. And I guess not surprising in a way that I became such an urbanist because I grew up in a suburb. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in San Francisco once I got into high school, you know, was in high school and um, just never really thought that I would not live in a city uh, once I got out. Um, so, yeah, I went to UCLA, came back, went to New York for a bit, came back. Um, it's San Francisco is easy to get frustrated with and easy to hate, but it's also quite easy to love and hard to leave. So so how has San Francisco and the Bay Area and I guess the area where you are today changed since you've been there? How do you feel about the changes? So I grew up in Marin. And for people who don't know Marin, it's a very wealthy, very white community full of lots of tiny suburbs. Um, it was less fancy when I grew up. Uh, when I was in high school, everyone drove their parents' old station wagon. But by the time my sister got there five years later, everyone drove their parents' Mercedes. It was just like <laughs> kind of a, a quick shift. Um, it was a place and is a place uh, with lots of outdoor act activities, um, Biking, surfing, hiking, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I always grew up with with that kind of stuff going on. But, um, you know, my parents both came from big cities. My dad was from Chicago. My mom was from Philadelphia. We took, we traveled uh, to New York a lot when I was young, um, Washington, D.C. So I was just very much enamored with um urban environments. Uh, I was, I did ballet for eight years. And so I would go to New York and go to the ballet. And so like that, that was always very exciting to me. So I think it always appealed. It's not that I hated where I was. I wasn't one of those kids like, Oh, I got to get out of here. It just, the city just was more exciting to me. So what's your earliest memory of California? You know, I have, even though we, we moved to LA when I was quite young, but for some reason, my memories are much stronger when we moved to the Bay Area, because there were a few things that just seemed, especially um, for a kid who'd been small in a city, when we moved to Marin, I remember looking out the window and there was a deer in our yard. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> wildlife outside. And, and also, um, San Francisco and still it's has this wonderful fog that rolls over the hills. And my mom described the first time she saw it, she wasn't sure if things were on fire or or what it was. I mean, the, the fog is really magical. I sort of remember those two things from when I was little. Who are some Californians who've influenced you over the years, maybe impacted you and who you are personally? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people actually. And it's funny, when, when you sent me um, a list of questions initially, I was having this internal debate with myself about, um, you know, do you have to have been born in California to be a Californian? And, and I think I came down and said that you don't. Um, I mean, I don't know where everyone was born, but it felt different to me that I, I feel like when someone says, oh, you're a real New Yorker, like, the idea is like, well, you had to be from there. But because to me, and even though this is true of New York too, I feel like so much of California is people who came from somewhere else to start a life here. So you didn't have to be born here because 
<laughs> you came here to start something different. And that's exactly right. I mean, I was talking to a guest the other day and they were saying the exact same thing. It's like the thing that makes so many Californians who they are is their is that they're a transplant. Yep. You know, and, and so that's unique to California on its own. Yeah. I mean, my dad, um, who was a doctor, he grew up in Chicago. His dad was a doctor. He didn't have much choice in the matter. I think he wanted to go to Stanford, but his dad wanted him to stay um, in the Midwest. And, um, you know, he moved to California and, um, you know, just embraced all of it. Went for a hundred mile bike rides on the weekend, you know, took us hiking at Mount Tam. Um his lab in San Francisco had a beautiful view of the ocean and, you know, really um, lived in just like a gorgeous house with a view of the bay, like embraced all the California stuff. And I would say my dad is definitely constantly been an inspiration to me and a support and um, a true Californian um, in the sense of the word. Um, I realized it's so funny. I mean, if probably if you asked me on any given day, it would change. But, um, you know, I went to UCLA, a very California school. And one day I took a seminar on the culture of Los Angeles. And it was, it was Thomas Hines was the professor. And one day he just threw a bunch of us in in a van and took us on this tour of um, all these great modern houses in Los Angeles, like the Eames house and uh, Neutra house, things like that. And I didn't know anything about, I was 17, 18 years old. And uh, it was amazing. Like, I just remember just being very impressed, but also like very uninformed, but I definitely remember that field trip. And many, many years later, I was sitting at my desk as the editor of Dwell magazine and just kind of had this realization like, Oh yeah, I like went and saw all these houses and just had stored it up in my brain. And so I do think uh, I've been influenced or certainly inspired a lot by um, all the architects who came to California sort of after World War II and um, carved out something new here. I mean, all the case study houses and art and architecture magazine, which was certainly a, a forerunner of Dwell where I've spent so much of my career. Um, architects like um, Richard Neutra, who emigrated, Rudolf Schindler, who emigrated here after the war. And there was like a whole cultural community of, of people in Los Angeles. I, you know, definitely has, uh, has inspired my work a lot. A woman I saw just yesterday who I worked with, who I met through Spur probably 15 years ago, um, Diane Filippi, who's turning 80 this year, who's just a kind of tireless advocate for urbanism and architecture and um, supports journalism and and just has like this immense spirit and energy that um, is incredibly inspiring to me. Someone else I would mention. What about geography? I mean, you kind of alluded to architecture and what about the landscapes themselves? How does um, location, terrain, obviously buildings, roads, spaces influence you? I mean, maybe do you have a, a favorite California place? Yeah, I mean, I have so many uh, favorite California places and so many favorite buildings, famous ones, not famous ones. I think that my my life is um, so much about my life and how I live it is related to place. You know, I'm, I'm so lucky to live in a part of San Francisco where I can pretty much get anywhere without a car. And I think that really kind of enhances my experience of place. I mean, I live just a few minutes walk from this giant canyon called Glen Canyon in San Francisco that was actually going to be um, torn down and a freeway run through it. And um, like a bunch of neighborhood moms stopped it 
And um, I'm always a fan of you know, the people who get away, get in the way of highways, <laughs> keep, a, keep a neighborhood, um, you know, just to transform a neighborhood. And, and it's impossible to imagine. I mean, it's easy to imagine what it could have been, but it's not. I feel like everything I do is kind of um, related to place. I mean, so much of the writing and kind of advocacy work I've done is about safer streets, um, better housing, all those things. Um, I feel like my career and my life's very integrally tied to place and landscape. Yeah. Well, let's pivot to your career. What officially do you do for a living in California today? <laughs> well, it's funny. I do this for a living in California, but I am employed by MIT, which of course is ah. in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm the editorial director of MIT Technology Review uh, Print Magazine. And there's a small group of us um, out here in San Francisco that um, are lucky enough to work remotely on the publication. What other roles and responsibilities do you have keeping you busy in San Francisco? I know you do some other stuff too, right? Yes. So, you know, I I was writing quite a lot. Um, I mean, throughout my whole career, um, I'm writing less right now, but I do write book reviews for the San Francisco Chronicle, which I love because I am... You can see, of course, your listeners can't see, but I'm sitting in front of my massive bookshelf. I spent all my money on books. And so I love reading and, and writing book reviews. Um, I am a mentor for the Women and Transportation Society, um, or sorry, organization. I feel like I'm always doing something. Um, I have a 16-year-old daughter. She takes a lot, a lot of time in all the best ways. Um, and she incidentally is, is studying to be an architect, even in high school. So all of the place making stuff has rubbed off on her. How does California factor into the overall work you do? How are you observing or covering the state and its culture and its people? So, you know, before coming to MIT, I worked for um, quite a long time for SPUR, the San Francisco Planning and Urban, sorry, it's San Francisco Bay Area uh, Urban Planning and Research. Um, we added two other cities after I started working there, uh, which is a public policy organization here in the Bay Area that covers the whole swath of things related to cities, uh, transportation, sustainability, uh, urban agriculture, uh, housing, everything, a lot. I, I have become intimately familiar with with all of the challenges that San Francisco faces and, and also intimately familiar with how they're not doing a very good job at tackling them. Um, there's this very strange thing, maybe not particular San Francisco, but feels particular San Francisco, that it's a very liberal city, but all the liberals disagree with each other. So even though someone might be like one degree different on the spectrum, um, it still becomes a thing. So we're extremely bad at forming alliances, even though people are probably <laughs> closer than they think. Right. So um, it's it's a little bit difficult to watch this play out. Um, obviously, we have a massive housing shortage here. And it seems like every time a new um, ballot measure is introduced or a new uh, law is introduced, it's basically designed to make it even harder to build housing. I mean, it's it's a multi-year process to have a deck built if you get it permitted in this city. Like nothing, nothing is working smoothly. Um, I think five years ago, I took a tour of the Central Subway Tunnel in downtown San Francisco, and that's still not open. And it's like 
I don't know, it's two miles long. And like everything just takes so long. And then you read in other countries like, oh, we just built, you know, 40 miles of train in a year and a half. And you're just like, oh, what are we doing wrong? At a fraction Um, of the cost that California builds it at. I do think we sometimes suffer from too much democracy. I I feel like the whole system of public comment is quite broken. This is veering from the question you asked. But I feel like right now we have this meetings, whether it's the school board meeting or the board of supervisors meeting that everyone is allowed to come up and make a complaint or a comment, but nothing ever happens with those complaints and comments. So everyone feels dissatisfied at the end. It's just, if it's if it's an open forum just for people to air grievances and those grievances aren't actually ever addressed, then this is where we are. Yeah. I mean, look, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you, right? I mean, we all want democracy. We all love democracy, but we also love solutions. So, you know, what are some of the proposed solutions or ideal solutions, uh, you know, short, long-term that might help get this process going. Yeah, well, it's, you know, you would ask me about how this relates to my work. So let's say, you know, I work for a technology publication earlier this week, uh, Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork, and we all know how that turned out, just got God knows how many millions and millions of dollars to solve Housing. Housing isn't really a technology problem. It's not that we couldn't build more efficiently and all that, but like you could design some mystical machine that would build housing in five minutes in San Francisco and it would make not a whit of difference because it's all the approvals and financing and, you know, community input. Like that's the. Those it's leadership is the problem of housing. I just think of like a monopoly board for San Francisco. There's like no houses, right? Like you're basically all you have is like the little game pieces. Like you have the dog, you have the hat, you have the iron, right. but there are no houses. There are no hotels. There are no actual structures. You just have like a little card to say, go to jail. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So um, I have um, zero faith that Adam Newman will solve the housing crisis. And I don't think anyone else believes that he will either, but nor do I think that there's any other kind of magical thing that's going to show up. Um, could could the way houses are built become more sophisticated? Sure. Will that matter if we can't fix the other problems? No. Um, we have more egregious housing improvement process than, than any other place. In most places, if a project is designed to code, you can build it. Whereas here, I think it's like if I have a check for $600, I can go file a complaint and keep a project from being built. This even happened with the De Young Museum in Golden Gate Park. One person thought that the design looked like a gas station and held the project up for years. Amazing. Amazing. So is San Francisco kind of like in the post-housing stage of its kind of urban life? (laughs) Sincerely, like, is that where you're at? Because I mean, it kind of feels that way. It does feel that way. And every time I see, I mean, even Spur did this report, you know, you know, in cooperation with a lot of organizations about, I'm not going to remember the number, but how many millions of units of housing we need to build by say 2050. And, you know, I kind of feel like, let's just acknowledge that's not going to (laughs) happen. So, you know, can we get anything? The number of housing units is actually declining declining, um, not increasing. So, and all this is just one problem. Um, and then people wonder, you know, why are families leaving the school system? Well, they're leaving the school system because, you know, 
there's a teacher shortage because teachers can't afford to live for like all these things connect to one another. And I think that it, it it's, it's a mistake for people to not see these as systemic and related problems. And I think a lot of times that's what happens. I mean, a lot of people don't always consider education as an issue of urbanism, but in fact, there's been a huge exodus of families from uh, San Francisco. Um, my kid's first day of school was yesterday. She had 46 kids in her English class. Wow. Because the district is just not able to hire all the teachers they need to. And yeah. I read yesterday, oh, they're they're offering like a thousand dollar bonus. A thousand dollar bonus is not gonna fix that problem. Like so it's like a priority issue. It's there they should also be able to sort of fast track housing for teachers and other essential workers, things that are just not happening. Um it's it's frustrating. Yeah, and we previously spoke a few years ago in your capacity as a design critic, along with what you were doing with Spur, among other roles. And I am particularly interested in your thoughts on this matter as a matter of urban design. Maybe we can kind of start broadly, like how has the practice of urban design and the people and the policies and the conversations driving it changed in California since you started researching it and and covering it? I'd love to say there's been a transformative change. Uh, it's always an interesting exercise to to find stuff written, you know, in the 70s, in the 50s, in the 30s, and you're just like, oh, cars are a scourge, or, you know, California's too crowded, or, you know, like, like certain things don't change. Um, I will say, not just California, but the United States has been designed for the car, and that has only gotten worse, not better. There are certainly some pockets within the United States and within California, but very, very few, um, where one could live comfortably without a car. Many bad things have happened as a result, right? I think this year we're on record to have 7% more traffic fatalities than ever. There's all kinds of knock-on effects of car ownership, obviously fossil fuel, climate change, but also obesity, heart disease, um, a host of other uh, health implications. Children are less active and more obese because whereas something like 80% of kids walk to school, like I walked to school in the 70s, now it's something like 4% of kids who walk to school on any sort of regular basis. And so we've seen this, you know, it's it's impacted so many things in so many different ways. I and mean, people, if, if something is silly, but also serious, it's like people have no sense of direction, right? They become so reliant on Google Maps to navigate their car. People aren't navigating things on foot. Um, they're not kind of experiencing the world around them because they're in a car. Houses have become bigger. Um, distances between people have grown. Um, you know, you see kids like they can't, they can't play in the playground because they they have to be driven to where their friends live. I mean, this whole sense of like gathering communities around, you know, like a central community center or a park or something like things just get so spread out um, that the car just becomes a conduit to to everything. And and I think until we figure out a way around that, driverless cars is still going to be the same thing. Um, it's, it's, it's not going to help that problem at all. Um, again, it's like a leadership initiative. We have huge land use challenges here that require kind of visionary leadership to change them. It's really hard to, to retrofit suburbia, but I don't think we should abandon the idea outright. Yeah. And I think what you just mentioned about land use, among other issues and policies, that is the kind of thing that a lot of folks don't necessarily think about when they think about design. And I know I'm prone to this sometimes. I think of design and I think of people who are interested in design as you know people with really thick framed 
glasses <laughs> with floor to ceiling windows and like 20 pound coffee table books. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's so much more than that. Design touches everything that traditionally ails California, uh, whether it's wildfires. I mean, that's a design problem yeah. There's because there's a whole wildland urban interface to protect, right? Drought. It's kind of a design problem because we build cities and farms and deserts and our only solution for water storage seems to be damming rivers and that itself engineering and design, unless we have snowpack, of course. Um, so I guess in what ways have Californians designed themselves into corners and how can we design ourselves out of them? I wrote this great column when I was at Sunset Magazine. It was called First on the Block. And I basically just made my house into a sustainable experiment to see ways that that I could do better. You know, I had uh, a whole bunch of different solar panels companies come to the house and kind of advise me. And it, the advice ran the gamut from rip out all your floors and put in solar radiant heating to don't do anything, your utility bills only, you know, 60 bucks a month. Um, I did a home performance energy evaluation. I put in water tanks, uh, gray water, which was actually illegal. Like there's, there's some actually pretty easy things <laughs> that you can do. And, and, and when you do them, and we just published an article in, in Tech Review, and um, I think the title was like, the future of sustainability is energy efficient refrigerators. And it was all about how, you know, there's, some, let's say a million units of housing in the New York Housing Authority. And if all of them had more efficient appliances, like the costs and like energy usage of like that many units of housing would just be exponentially different. So those things aren't sexy, but they're actually quite impactful. Um, California, now you need to um, have electric stoves versus gas, right? So if you start initiating these like large scale transformations, um, that's when you start to see change. So that's not so much a land use issue there, but I think that you could extend that, right? So it used to be that if you built a multi-unit building, there's a maximum number of parking spaces that you were required um, to have in that building miraculously, some people have managed to build some buildings now that have no parking or like the minimum amount of parking. I mean, in Los Angeles, I think that apartment buildings are required to have two parking spaces per unit, um, just because it's Los Angeles. Um, and you're sort of penalized if you don't have two cars, because I think you have to have that parking space. Anyway, so just think the assumption is that many cars, right? So there's so many things that, that we're thinking when we put together a building that are all about like, how do we get the car in here? How do we maximize this for the driving experience? And really, a lot of this is, um, it's, I won't say it's simple, because it's not, but like, what if we thought about designing our communities so that... Um, it's one block to the grocery store that your kids could walk to school. You know, it's when new suburban communities are designed, those are not designed that way. They're designed so that you usually have to wend your way in and out of cul-de-sacs. And um, I visited one development I remember in Arizona. It had a shopping mall, but you had to drive out of the suburban development to get in the shopping mall. There was no actual way to walk from one to the other. And so we keep doing these things that necessitate even a drive like half a block away. And so if we really start to think about how we might prioritize, you know, what some people call 15 minute living or eight to 80 cities that you're designing for people of all abilities, um, that's how we get out of this. I'm not ready to give up on the United States as a whole, but um, it is really an uphill battle. <laughs> Earlier, you alluded to leadership uh, This and this being a leadership problem as well. Where in California are city and or county leaders uh, doing the most intriguing work with urban or suburban or 
even rural design? I guess what's the state of the art in California? So um, I'll point out a, a few politicians who I just think are um, just really fighting the good fight. And boy, they are fighting all the time. Um, I think Scott Weiner, who used to be my district uh, supervisor and now is a California state senator, is just... I think he works uh, 36 hours a day. Like he's just, you know, if you email him, he gets back to you in in an hour. I see him at events all over the city. He's actually getting legislation passed. He puts up new housing legislation um, all the time. It gets voted down and he still does it. Um, I think that he's really, really working quite hard uh, for the city. The city of Los Angeles has done a transformative job um, in terms of transportation Obviously, Los Angeles is still very much a car-dependent city, but it managed to pass massive, expensive ballot measures um, over the last 10 years and build out a whole subway network um, in actually a really fast amount of time. Did that mean that everyone got out of their cars and took the subway? No, but it was just kind of incredible that they um, built out that network and managed to um, generate a strong enough public campaign to get people to vote for it, which is always an easy thing to do. Everything was awful about the pandemic. A couple of bright spots were like the slow streets movement, right? And now there's all kinds of people trying to revert those back to um, to cars. And I just want to shout out and applaud the people who are working so hard to try and make that not happen. Can we take each of these like one at a time? Because yeah. I, I want to ask you about LA and then also about the slow streets because the 6th Street Viaduct in LA... Um, you know, that replaces an old kind of structurally unsound span. It recently opened and then was closed and then reopened again and then closed again. It's a really great example of, I think, best intentions of California urban design mm -hmm. gone a little bit awry. Yeah. Uh, it nods to multi-use, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with bicycles and bike lanes, but I mean, it's barely safe for cars, <laughs> let alone yeah. cyclists. So what's your take on that, on that project? Um, and you know, it's kind of imagined use <laughs> versus the reality of how it has actually been used since it opened in July. Yeah, to be honest with you, I, I, it boggles my mind sometimes. It reminds me of, um, the Bay Bridge here in, um, Oakland, San Francisco that has a bike lane that only goes halfway. <laughs> they gotta swim the rest of the way. <laughs> I mean, who is at that meeting? <laughs> <laughs> it just, I, I really, I, I don't, uh, people are working hard. I don't, I don't want to take it away from the fact that people are working hard and there's bureaucracies or whatever, but, but sometimes it's just like, so head scratching the central subway that I alluded to earlier, they put down the wrong tracking on it and, and then had to put like they, in the Bay bridge, they put in the wrong bolts. I mean, I just, it's, it kind of boggles my mind how much of that there is. And then you look to other countries and they're like spitting out the equivalent of the Sixth Street Viaduct. It's like a weekend project. Right, them. right, right. I, I feel like, and I wrote a piece about this for the Times a few years ago, that all of America looks at infrastructure the way like kind of a negligent homeowner looks at their house. Like, yeah, the roof's kind of leaky, but, you know, we'll give it another year. And then invariably what happens is you've waited too long your whole house floods, your insurance premiums go up and it costs you like three times as much to fix your roof because you waited. And so writ large, that to me is how we deal with infrastructure. We just wait and wait and wait or people fight over it. It gets more and more expensive. 
um, something happens and then it becomes an emergency. And so the labor costs are more expensive and, and people rush and they make mistakes. And this just keeps, this is basically how we deal with infrastructure. There's no regard for it. There's no respect for how important it is. Um, there's a great book about the Golden Gate Bridge that Dave Eggers and Tucker Nichols did, the illustrator. And um, it's all about like people show people were th- so excited. Like they went to the opening of the Golden Gate Bridge, like infrastructure was something to be celebrated. And they understood that this was like this major connector and, you know, facilitator of economy and culture and all these things. And we have completely lost sight of of how dependent we are on these things and that they need to be prioritized and and frankly they are things that we should be taking pride in not just embarrassed by how bad they all turned out and that viaduct is kind of it's a reflection of vision right it's not just leadership it's not just you know infrastructure i mean it's it's a reflection of california's vision right. and its perception of itself and how seriously it takes right. itself you know and putting infrastructure or development or any sort of building on some like indefinite delay reflects a complete unseriousness in how to lead and shape this state for the future and that I mean, I don't, I don't know what happened. Like you mentioned, the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, opens whatever it was, you know, ninety years ago, and that was something that people really took a lot of pride in, and that was, I think, a reflection of the vision that people still had for the state. And now it's like it's all been built out, with, theoretically, sort of. I think people take it for granted. And it's like, well, that's good. We're good. We're good. Anything else is just, you know, extra money. We don't need that. that that's kind of the yeah. I mean, look at high speed rail, which like gets exponentially more expensive every minute. It is under construction. Every Republican candidate shows up and wants to cancel it <laughs> because of the way that, um, y- you know, that state and local politics works. Anyone can get in the way of any bit of it. Um, both San Francisco and Los Angeles have not worked out how it will actually arrive in the city. Like anywhere else, <laughs> this would have been finished forever ago. The f- I, I remember hearing a radio program years ago and someone was like, why are we building a train? No one takes the train from LA to San Francisco. It's like, right. No one takes the train from LA to San Francisco. It takes 12 hours. <laughs> if, it, if it took two hours. Everybody, I mean, the the flight from LA to San Francisco is the most annoying flight. It's invariably late. It takes you forever to get there. Sometimes you're like, oh, well, I should have driven it, you know, would take me the same amount of time. I do believe that people would take the train. It could be transformative for the economy and for all the cities and towns in between LA and San Francisco and why people continue to fight tooth and nail over it is just mind boggling. Well, let's move back to what you're saying about the slow cities, right? Uh, because uh, you did write uh, for the New York Times early in the pandemic about the opportunity that COVID-19 gave cities to transform their streets and other public spaces. Some cities took advantage of that. Um, expanded sidewalk dining, for example, major road closures. Um, of course, motorists and businesses pushed back like crazy. Uh, like we rely on these busy streets. I mean, it's, it's a reasonable argument. Um, and then there's this clawback from cities you know, here in Sacramento, where I live, there's a clawback from city leadership who depend on parking revenue. Right. So now we have them kind of, we have cities retreating from this people first mentality right. that we had seen for the last two plus years. So how can these gains for public spaces be preserved or perhaps even expanded upon, if at all. Well, I mean, I think this comes down to leadership again. And and unfortunately, Mayor Breed here in San Francisco has kind of relinquished that role. I mean, the number of people who have been killed by cars in this city and in every city um, 
has been, I mean, I mean, I don't know what, what it's going to take to, to get people to act. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? We've all seen that the size of cars has grown exponentially over the past few years. The bigger a car gets, the more dangerous it is. Uh, I also found out reading last week that um, this city in particular has stopped giving traffic violations for things like running stop signs. And wow. There were sort of like 10 tickets a day. So um, there's all kinds of problems with enforcement, of course, but if you stopped enforcing like a bad taillight, right. And then like if someone runs a light, they should get a ticket. So there isn't any kind of visionary leadership around keeping these streets safe. And there's also all kinds of misconceptions about how much money people spend in cars versus on foot or on a bike. The idea that people who show up by bike or on foot are not also consumers is just patently false. And there's a ton of data that shows that to be true. Also, if you're walking down a street of shops, as opposed to parking and running into a shop, you might actually spend more money because you um, have more access to them. And there's, there's, um, you know, this is like another technology angle of all of this. Um, you know, I, I worked for a while with an urban data and transportation company. And, you know, the belief is that, oh, well, we have all this data to show, you know, X outcomes with data. And that will make people change policy in accordance with that data. But in fact, there are a billion pages of data that showed you if you build additional lanes of a highway, more people will use that highway and it will not actually solve the traffic problems. No one is stopping building highways. There's a ton of data that shows that consumers who arrive and park their bike might actually spend more money than someone who arrives uh, by car, but people just choose to ignore it and merchants say, oh, well, we need to depend on parking revenue. So there's, um, and transportation departments uh, default to a lot of um, old paradigms also, like, you know, cities are, and transportation systems are designed for men, as anyone who's tried to get a stroller on a bus or into the subway, uh, men and and more able-bodied people. So if you start to rethink the way all these things are designed, then you can get at cities that work better for more people. Um, and we are just not there yet. Making streets close to cars, uh, Sanchez Street is one that's that's close to me. That street is so well used all day. There are people on bikes, strollers, running. Kids can be there. I mean, the thing that I fear most when my kid is out is that she's going to get hit by a car. And I wrote a piece for the Times about um, how many people I know have been hit by a car and just did a um, on Twitter, did a call out asking people. And um, it was insane how many people have been hit by a car, myself included. Um, my niece got hit in LA and lost all her teeth when she was, you know, all her front teeth when she was eight years old. Like this, the amount that we're willing to tolerate that versus seeking other alternatives is is quite disturbing. And um, I'm just, again, I, I think that there's plenty of people against it, but there's plenty of people for it. But if there's not leadership in place to advocate for it, then um, we find ourselves in the situation uh, we're in now. And it's true with outdoor dining and all the other things that have changed too. What has your work revealed to you about California that you found most compelling or maybe even surprising? I mean, I think this is a place where uh, people are willing to try anything. I mean, historically, it's a place where people come to to do just that, whether it's the gold rush or the tech boom or or whatever. I think the state is in a bit of a, I don't know, it's always changing. So for me to say it's in a transition is um, 
is false. I mean, obviously we have this huge economy, we have this huge population, we have a huge amount of diversity. Um, the industries that are represented here are changing. Um, from my own perspective now, having um, lived in the Bay Area for decades, um, you know, I do think that San Francisco used to be a place that people gravitated to, to find other kind of eccentric people like themselves or to make a go in the art world. And like, because of the housing crisis and some other things, um, this city has changed um, as, as far as that goes, because this is not where you come to like make it as an artist. <laughs> and uh, increasingly it's, it's, it's harder and harder to, to find places to do that, which is not to say there isn't an art scene here, but um, you know, my first job out of college was at a nonprofit gallery and there were like installations happening under freeways. And, you know, it was just like a very different mm -hmm. rougher place than it is now. You know, everyone who comes to San Francisco thinks it was perfect at the exact moment they arrived here. And I think that's probably true for all of California. <laughs> So I'm not going to I'm not going to get all Andy Rooney and say like, oh, in the old days, it was perfect because, because it wasn't. This is just a strange, difficult time with so many obstacles. And um, but also, I think so many opportunities to come up with uh, with solutions. Certainly, I think the state can really innovate on climate. And um, I like to ask guests about the biggest challenge that California faces. And you just mentioned climate. Would you say that's the biggest challenge that the state faces? And is there another one and 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 what's the solution? I mean, how can it be surmounted? Do you think? I mean, I am always hesitant to pick one of anything because I feel like they're all so interconnected. Um, climate, yes, but all the things that are exacerbating the climate problems, right? Like what? Um, bad policy, uh, car dependency. You know, we subsidize cars and highways to an frightening extent, and we're not really subsidizing uh, EVs. Solar panels. I mean, if I was in charge, <laughs> I would say that anyone sh who who is a homeowner should just go get solar panels, and the state's going to subsidize it, or at least subsidize fifty percent of it. Uh huh. Okay. Um, if any car company is willing to like shift their production fleet, you know, we're going to subsidize that shift away from fossil fuels. But we're not seeing these kind of like big moves. And I'm being simplistic, but I but I do think, you know, if we could have, you know, we definitely have the finances and the intellectual capacity and the technology to make these changes, but but someone's got to summon it. Like it 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 has to it has to come from giant initiatives. It's not going to be come from like Oh, if you all swap out your LED light bulbs, like it's going to be okay. Unplug your cell phone charger. Like all these tiny little things. Like we can't put we can't put the onus of this on individual. Yes, you can change your individual behavior, but corporate entities and governments need to be leading this because they are the primary causes of it. So, I think kind of like shifting that rhetoric, which is really uh, difficult. You know, going and buying like eco-friendly cleaning products products at the supermarket is really not going to combat climate change. But it'll make you feel so much better. It's so much better. <laughs> it's like it's never going to be enough. It makes you feel better. That's fine. <laughs> So, uh, in your experience discussing California with folks outside the state, maybe folks at the MIT Technology Review, for example, or elsewhere in your travels, what do you find that they most misunderstand about California? Weather. <laughs> no, I mean, I think within media, there's always this funny thing that every time the New York Times writes something about 
Los Angeles in particular, everyone is just like, ah, that's just not it at all. <laughs> like, we do have bagels or whatever it is. I mean, there's like lots of general um, cultural misunderstandings. But I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious. But every time someone comes to visit me from MIT or whatever else in the summer and they're freezing, you know, <laughs> it's so cold here in the summer. And, you know, people are always just so surprised. Yeah. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Okay, I have really struggled with this question that you sent me. Um, I mentioned it to my daughter, and she, of course, was like, I'm your favorite Californian. And yes, of course, my my daughter is probably my favorite Californian. Um, but I know I'm not allowed to, to choose family members. I'm just going to choose this person because this like came across my desk yesterday. Um, there's an amazing painter, Joan Brown. She uh, went to California College of Art. She painted in the Bay Area. SF MoMA is opening a retrospective of her work in a couple months. She swam to Alcatraz and did a whole series of paintings about it. She just, she was part of the California painting group that included uh, Richard Diebenkorn and David Park. And it's just an incredible painter. And I don't think it's gotten her due enough, but um, I think there are so many amazing California artists in general because of the way we think about the art world. I think it's still even today, like so much about New York, but um, I probably in part because I, you know, I studied art history in grad school. My mom worked in the arts. My first job was a gallery girl in, in Los Angeles. Like it's very, it's, it's been a very important part of my life in California, art. Uh, I met my husband at an art gallery. Um, so I, today I'm going to pick Joan Brown and everyone should go see her retrospective at MoMA. Opens in November. Fantastic. We'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> Allison Arif, thank you so much for being on What is California? It's been so great to have you here. Oh, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. All right. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Allison Arif, thank you, Allison, for dropping by What is California? Again, such a pleasure to reconnect with Allison and bring her insight to you, dear listener. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I hope that we can continue that conversation because there's a lot there to unpack about urban design and the future of design in our cities here in California. So uh, yeah, let's keep it going. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can follow us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That's whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That'll get you a free episode, new episodes in your inbox every Tuesday morning, as well as a weekend links roundup of very cool California stories in your inbox every Friday morning. That's whatiscalifornia.substack.com. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to that. Thanks to everyone who has read it and otherwise shared it. It's really great to see all that pickup and engagement there. So thanks again. Email me anytime at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Send me, you know, thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, love notes, hate mail, marriage proposals, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. I would love to hear from you. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can also subscribe to What Is California wherever you get podcasts. If you like What Is California, it would really mean a lot to me if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple 
Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That's going to do it for this episode. It's been so great having you here. Thanks as always for listening. I will catch you next time. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.